I tell people, you know at this point who I am and what I speak about, just don't invite me. If this is going to cause you a problem or an issue, then don't invite me and I'm okay with that. That's where I'm at with with my art. Hello and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. And I'm Rob Kramer, the founder and CEO of Kramer Leadership, whose mission is to advance leaders for the greater good. This week, we bring you our interview with poet, spoken word artist, blogger, and activist Hannah Drake. On Super Bowl Sunday of 2019, Hannah, who had long written about politics, feminism, and race, reached a new level of fame. Film director and producer Ava DuVernay, to protest the NFL's treatment of quarterback-turned-activist Colin Kaepernick, tweeted at Hannah's poem, All You Had to Do Was Play the Game, Boy. Kaepernick, in turn, shared the poem with his followers, and in short order, Hannah's words reached 2.4 million viewers. Amazing. Thankfully, Hannah has only continued turning up the volume on her art and activism since then especially in the last year when, after the murder of Breonna Taylor, she stood and spoke on the front lines of protests in Louisville against police brutality. She's collaborated with the Louisville Ballet and the Actors Theater of Louisville on new projects and continues to offer a provocative commentary on her widely read blog, Write Some S Hashtag IT. Hannah is also the Chief Creative Officer of Ideas X Lab, an artist-run nonprofit based in Louisville, Kentucky, that champions inclusion and belonging through creativity, art, and action. Inspired by a trip she made with her daughter three years ago to the National Memorial for Peace and Justice and the Legacy Museum in Montgomery, Alabama, Hannah, along with Ideas X Labs co-founder and CEO Josh Miller, devised the Unknown Project. The Unknown Project is a multi-year series of public art installations and educational experiences designed to bring to civic and national consciousness the Black men, women, and children in Louisville's past who have been overlooked in history. I started the interview by asking her whether, given her social justice advocacy and her work as a chief creative officer, she needed to carve out space for her artistry or whether her activism and art were always linked. Yeah, I think they're both intertwined. I think art is always at the start of a movement. I mean, even when people think about Black Lives Matter and it, it being this huge movement, those are three words. So you t- the words formed around this movement, right? And so you you didn't hear, I believe Black Lives Matter started after Trayvon uh, and Mike Brown and the, the deaths of both of them. And you have people come together and say, well, let's use these three words. Well, that's art. That's writing, right? And so how can I use my art form to speak to what's happening in the world? And so I've partnered with the Louisville Ballet. I've partnered with an orchestra. Um, How do we use these tools of art that we have to tell this story. I remember, and this is before Brianna Taylor, I remember the Louisville Ballet invited me to uh, read poetry with them. And I thought, okay, this will be interesting because the Louisville Ballet is predominantly white and the audience is predominantly white. And I thought, "Mm, you want me to come? Okay. And so I said, well, what is it that you want me to write about? What is this? And I thought, well, okay, this felt like roses and daisies and fun times. And then, 
I thought it was going to be something. Right, because that's all you write about. Right. Clearly, they'd read your work. Literally, yes. They were very aware of your work. And they said we would like for you to write about social justice in any way that you want to write about it. And I said, oh, okay, that's interesting. And in the ballet, and to this day, this was about three years ago, but to this and I've partnered with them a lot more, but to this day, there's only one Black ballet dancer in the Louisville company, right? And this particular ballet dancer, his name is Brandon Raglan, he was the choreographer for this piece. And so he couldn't be in the dance. And so I wrote a poem about my son being killed. And I never said who killed him, this that he was murdered. And how do I go on as a mother? And how do we start telling these stories? And in the piece, they had um, a young man who was white, a beautiful ballet dancer, play my son. And I'm telling this story and you see him dancing, a phenomenal, phenomenal dancer. And me telling this story about my son that's been killed coupled with this dancer, this white male dancer, it transcended so much in that space. We performed it five nights in a row and they said for the history of the company and them doing this choreographer showcase. We were the only people to get a standing ovation every single night. But I think what made it so powerful, especially for this audience, is that many of them are so far removed from, from Breonna Taylor or Maude Arbery or George Floyd. They exist in a world that that just doesn't happen. They cannot be concerned about Breonna Taylor. You know, Louisville is very divided and there's this veil between us. And using this art in this space at the Louisville Ballet and to have this white male dancer coupled with me broke down that veil. And immediately they just saw a mother and a son. And because he was white, they could see him as their son, and then they got it. That's the power of art. And so I think it all just intertwines. I'm not separated from my art. It's simply who I am and what I do. And how can I, you, you know, I tell people all the time, I'm not writing to entertain you. I'm trying to change you. I'm trying to change the very way that you think. And if I have to use art and poetry and art coupled with dance or art coupled with the orchestra, then that's what I will do. Whatever it will take for you to change the way that you think, that's what I'm willing to do. You said something earlier about, it was kind of a rhetorical question, what does it mean to make art in this era? But I kind of want to ask it to you, what does it mean to make art for you specifically today as opposed to say five years ago. Has your relationship to your art changed your mission? Can you talk about that? I think my mission hasn't changed. I've always written about social justice issues. And I used to wonder like, why God is this my assignment? Like, why didn't you just let me write about love all the time or something? Like, why? <laughs> why am I the one that has to write about these things? But um, I, I believe I'm here for such a time as this. 
I feel like Dr. King said there's this fierce urgency of now. So my work hasn't necessarily changed outside of the fact that now I have nothing to lose. And now after we have witnessed George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, at, at what point as artists will we just stand up and speak the truth? I, I tell people all the time, I know as, as an artist, so you think about as an artist, I might lose funding. I might not get invited back to the thing, the, the ballet, if I say this, they're never going to invite me back to speak again. Or, you know, I might not get the grant if I'm saying this. But at what point will we stand up and just not be afraid? And on the flip side of that, at what point will people that fund artists and people that provide the grant know that it's okay to fund someone that is going to speak the truth. That artists shouldn't live in this constant state of fear that they might lose out because they are speaking the truth. That is what will change the world. And art is always at the forefront of a movement. Are we at that point then that you, when Pete, when funders will not be afraid and artists will not be afraid? No. Are we there yet? No, no, no. no. We're not at that point. You know, I but I've drawn a line in the sand. So I tell people, you know, at this point who I am and what I speak about, just don't invite me. If this is going to cause you a problem or an issue, then don't invite me. And I'm okay with that. That's where I'm at with, with my art. But, you know, we are slowly getting there as we saw what happened last year. And funders are understanding that you need artists that are going to speak truth to power. You know, you need artists that are going to put this out in the world so that the world can change. And it's often music, it's dance, it's poetry, it's paintings, it's all the things art that tell people what to think and feel and what to do and how to move throughout the world. Art is doing that. That reminds me of a, a recent tweet you wrote that said, in which you wrote, the city has caused me immense trauma. Yeah. The city tear gassed me. The city pulled guns on my partner. And still I work to do something historical to impact Louisville. Could you talk about how you negotiate those complicated, those feelings, the, the kind of the deep hurt and the injury along with your loyalty to bettering the city? How do you negotiate it, It's very difficult it's like you're in a rock and a hard place that you want to do something great and amazing and you know that is needed for this city. This is a city that certainly needs arts and culture in it and cultural culture and art that is relevant. It needs that. And yet and still this city has harmed me and tear gaps me and has never once said and probably never will say it's sorry for what it has done. And so I, I still struggle with that. And my partner said, Hannah, you have to remember that the art that you are creating isn't for a leadership in this city to get it. You're doing this for everybody else in this city to get it. And if the leadership doesn't get it, that's fine. But think about what you have done for everybody else in this city. And, and you know, some of the names came from people who weren't in Louisville. They're in Kentucky. And, and so I think it's for them. 
it's for, and I have to remember that. It's like in my poem spaces, uh, when I say I stand in these spaces, even when it makes me uncomfortable, because I'm standing in this space for the people that are going to come behind me. And, you know, I tell people, you know, when I teach poetry writing workshops or anything, there are times and it could be because you're black, it could be LGBTQ, it could be Latinx, it could be because you're a woman, it could be many things that you are going to have to stand in spaces and it's not going to feel good and there is no getting around it. But you have to stand in those spaces because of the people that will come behind you. And there were people who stood in spaces so that I could stand in space, so that I could even do this project. And it was difficult, you know, to do a a bus boycott. And they had to walk for years without taking the bus or to sit down at counters and have milkshakes poured over their head or being spit on or try to go into a school and you know uh, you're the only Black person or you're one of nine, you know. But they did that. They stood in spaces that made them extremely uncomfortable so that I could be in that space today. And so now my job is to just keep carving out space. And at times it's at the expense of feeling comfortable. You just go into it knowing this isn't going to feel good, but it's for a bigger cause. It's greater than you. How's your, um, your resilience, Hannah? You know, do you ever lose hope, uh, do you get discouraged? Oh, I get I get discouraged often. I, I truly do. I get discouraged. And, and you know what? It's 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 two two things. One, I get discouraged with the older people. And when I say older, <laughs> I mean my age. I'm in my 40s. So around that age and up, maybe a little bit younger than me. But the young people, I see so much hope and so much promise. I just today I taught a workshop about uh Juneteenth. For, for young people, about a group of 20 young people. And I asked them, uh, and they're middle school, high school, and I asked them, so did the Emancipation Proclamation free all the slaves? And they all said no. And I thought, well, you guys just made my job a lot easier because you already get it. And you have a, a generation that has grown up with the black president, Barack Obama. They've, they're growing up with Vice President Kamala Harris. They've grown up with gay marriage. They are growing up with these things that are just part of the world. And they don't understand why older generations just won't let it be and let people be. And so the young people give me hope. But sadly, and I will say this, you know, people ask me all the time, Hannah, you know, will there there ever be a day there will be no racism? And I say, no, that will never happen. It could, but it's not going to happen because parents and grandparents keep planting the seeds. It could go away if we weren't instilling it in young people. Young people know nothing. They're not born in the world hating anyone. They are taught that. And as long as parents and grandparents and institutions and the atmosphere keep teaching that, then we will continue to have racism. And it's not until 
something different is taught, which is why you have all this pushback across the nation about everyone wants to say critical race theory. I call it just teaching history. (laughs) (laughs) We're just going to teach you some facts. And there's this pushback because as long as we can continue to teach young people all the lies that we've been taught, then we can continue to perpetuate the same thing over and over and over again. But once young people know the truth, even older people, they will do something different. I had a woman email me real quickly, and she's 64 years old, and she read about the Unknown Project, 64. And she had never heard about the Ohio River and slavery and and enslaved people being sold down the river and that there was this dividing line that the Ohio river was this dividing line. And if you get across it, you can enter into States that were free states. She never knew that. And now she's learning it, but she's 64 years old and has this awakening now of what I've been taught. Wasn't really the truth. And when you know the truth, then typically if you really embrace the truth, you do something different. And that's why there's such fear about the teaching of, of history, basically. I want to I look specifically at your artistry as a writer and performer. And you described your work as being speaking truth to power. What needs to change to ensure that artists such as you can speak truth to power? That, that the work of poets like you can reach its intended audience? Is there something that could be reinvented if you could snap your fingers? I think if I could change anything, it, it would be how how poets want are valued and funded, right? And so I think there are many poets that have amazing things to say, and they simply don't have access to say them. Or if they do say something, then they risk, like I said, not getting funding for something. And I wish that that would change you know, here I I wrote um, this letter to the CEO of Churchill Downs last year, and I was very afraid. I knew that okay, so this we're in the middle of COVID, right? And and I was like following all the guidelines. You know, Matt, you can't you got to wear your mask. Don't gather in groups bigger than ten. Like I was serious. I'm following all the guidelines, and. Uh, the Kentucky Derby was still going on at that time in May. It's the first Saturday in May, they're having the Kentucky Derby. And our governor was like really strict. Like every day he was on the news with these reports and I appreciate him for he's on the news report and don't gather in groups of more than 10 and you got to be with your family and people that you live with. And, and we were following this, but then he never said anything about the Kentucky Derby still running and they were having 20,000 guests. And that could be guests from all over the world. And I knew instantly, okay, then Churchill Downs has the power in the state of Kentucky because not even the governor who has told us, his constituents, that we can't gather in groups of 10, he's allowing them to gather and have 20,000 people. And so I said, I need to talk about this and I'm going to address this letter to the CEO of Churchill Downs. And they moved the Derby to September and they decided to run it without the 20,000 people, but uh, they were still going to have guests and things, you know, because, you know, these are highfalutin people, blah, blah, they're still going to have guests. So I wrote this letter and, and I was afraid. I was so afraid 
because it was obvious that this institution and this man has all the power in Kentucky. But I had to write the letter afraid. Well, little did I know, NPR picked up the letter and it went viral on Kentucky Derby, on the day of the Derby. And it went around the world. And everybody started calling me about this letter. And lo and behold, as time went on, people started approaching me, telling me, thank you for writing that letter because I've been trying to talk about Black jockeys, the history of the Kentucky Derby and Black jockeys, the history of Kentucky Derby and slavery, and they always ignored me. And since you wrote that letter, they have reached out to me and contacted me. And people started contacting me all over about Churchill Downs now reaching out to them. And I believe now at the Kentucky Derby Museum, there's this display, someone told me it's as soon as you walk in, of the black jockeys that were essentially, here we go back to the unknown project, unknown, kind of erased and hidden. People kind of talked about it. We knew, but it was Churchill Downs didn't put it to the forefront. It's kind of hidden. Like it was this dirty little secret that black people really were winning the Kentucky Derby. And in fact, the first person to win the Kentucky Derby was a black jockey, you know? So this history was kind of just hidden. And so I had to write that afraid. And I had to write that at the expense of losing out because clearly I'm sure this man is connected to a lot of people in this state, but I had to do it afraid. And I had to do it at the expense of losing. I would hope what would change is that poets that come after me, writers that come after me, can speak the truth. And it's not at the expense of losing anything. But understanding that that is simply our job. Our job is to hold people, organizations, institutions accountable. And that should be okay. And it should not be. Well, if you talk about this particular institution, then we are going to remove your funding or we will blackball you where you won't be invited to speak at this or that or or the other thing. That should not be the case. At some point, funders need to stand with artists and have the courage to say, we are going to support this artist because this artist is doing something to try to change the world. And that's what I'm trying to do. And I hope that people understand that, um, that I'm trying to write to change the world, period. And I shouldn't have to worry about doing that. And can I speak the truth or, or put food on the table? That shouldn't be the argument. I should be able to do both. On one of your bio pages, I forget in which site, you're in a lot of places, <laughs> Hannah. <laughs> uh, after the list of your many titles, you write Still Growing. How do you think you're growing this year? And how do you think you want to grow over the next few years? You know, I think every day I'm still learning something. You know, every day I'm still challenging myself to learn. It's the same things that I challenge everybody else to do. Like every day should be a day that you learn something new about yourself, about others, about your community, about history. 
Every day I'm trying to do that. I'm a firm believer the day you stop learning, it's the day you die. The problem in this world is many people think, I, I know all the information. You can't tell me anything else. I read it in a tweet, so I have all the knowledge. You know, instead of listening, it's okay to stop and listen to others who may have a different perspective and say, you know, I never thought about that. Even now doing the unknown project, I'll say this quickly, doing the unknown project. And we have all these footprints, you know, leading up to the unknown project and on the path. And I started getting emails and photos from Jewish people. And they said, my goodness, this project reminds me of this. And they started showing me these, I can't remember where it was, but it's these bronze shoes of different sizes of people that died in the Holocaust. I didn't know about this and this connection now with how they see the footprints, uh, uh, enslaved people's footprints, and they're connecting them to the shoes of people that died in the Holocaust. So this is something now I can learn and how instead of us thinking we are so different, how do we bridge ourselves together? Because we've both been through this struggle, two of the greatest crimes against humanity. And how do we both start learning about that together? I don't have to hate you. You don't have to hate me. But together we both have a story to tell. You know, Pierre Carlo, the thing that really struck me about what Hannah spoke about was, and it's kind of reading between the lines, but her willingness to be uncomfortable and put herself in uncomfortable situations. Um, mm. You know, she wants to really continue the social justice work that her elders started and sees that she has a role to play in continuing moving the needle forward. Yeah. And the sense that she's cultivated over the years of her artistic integrity. In other words, she knows now, she, she has complete certitude about what her art stands for right, and what she's willing to back down for or not. As she says, her art is about speaking truth to power. And she maintains her integrity by remaining powerful. I was also really struck by her savvy, you know, uh, when she talked about reaching directly out to the CEO of Churchill Downs, because she noticed mm -hmm. that's a huge place of power in the state of Kentucky. So really looking for those sort of cracks in the systems or places that she can explore. And she just, man, goes right mm -hmm. for it. I really appreciated her her sense of energy and willingness to to uh, move forward on those things. And commitment to bettering her community to her hometown. You know, I think the Unknown Project is going to be a real boon for the entire city of Louisville. Oh, it's going to be really exciting to see how it unfolds over the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. If you'd like to learn more about Hannah, please visit uncsa.edu slash art restart. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. And if you are so moved, we'd be delighted if you'd leave us a rating. If you know an artist like Hannah, who's reinventing her field in your community, someone that we may not know about yet, please alert us. You can find me on both Instagram and Twitter at PC Talenti. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti. And I'm Rob Kramer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>